The reading this evening is taken from Romans chapter 8, which can be found on page 1134 of the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 1, life through the Spirit. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life sent me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind of controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. What is salvation? What does salvation mean? That's the question that we'll be asking ourselves tonight as we continue in our basic Christianity series. And so far in this series, we've seen who Jesus is, what our problem is, our sinful condition before God. And last week, we began to see what God has done about it, about our sinful condition in Jesus' death on the cross. And whilst this series is called Basic Christianity, the truths that we've seen so far and the truths that will be realising together this evening are incredibly rich, wonderfully deep and worth our full attention as they have the potential to change our lives completely. So, what does salvation mean? Many will say it's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. And this is absolutely true. But there's so much more to salvation. 
And what I want us to really notice this evening is that true salvation goes so much deeper than merely the forgiveness of sins. I don't know how many of you will have seen The Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' uh, book and then film. You may have seen the Muppet rendition of this. It's a tradition in a sweet family household that every Christmas Eve we put on Muppet Christmas Carol and watch it together. I'm not sure if that's your favourite, but I'm sure most of you will know the story quite well, where the cold-hearted and tight-pocketed Scrooge is visited by three spirits, three ghosts, three Christmas ghosts. And during the course of the film or the book, Scrooge is brought to realise just what a horrible person he is and just where his current lifestyle will take him. And at the end of the film or book or Muppet Adventure, we see this man Scrooge completely changed and transformed from the man he once was to a thoughtful, kind and generous gentleman. And throughout the film... The three Christmas ghosts aren't just concerned with Scrooge's past, what he's done. No, they're also concerned with his present and future, who he was uh, and what he would go on to be. And in regard to our salvation, God is concerned with our past, saving us from our sins that we have committed. However, like in the Christmas carol, God is just as much concerned with our present and our future. It's a great mistake to think that salvation refers only to the forgiveness of sins, to what we've done. Salvation is equally God's work in changing who we are now and transforming the people that we will become. But this is where the similarities to the Christmas carol end, because unlike Dickensian's Scrooge, who would save himself by being a nicer, more generous person, our salvation and transformation is entirely dependent upon God and his work in us, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we see God the Spirit working in salvation in three distinct ways. God's plan of salvation is first to make our relationship with him Right, that's the upward work of salvation. And then progressively set us free from our self-centeredness. That's the inward work of salvation. And finally, bring us into harmony and unity with other believers in the church. And that's the outward work of salvation. I feel like a little bit of an air hostess this evening, but we'll go with it, because that's what we see here in Romans 8. Firstly then, we look at God's work of salvation in restoring our relationship with him, the upward work of salvation. And in looking at these different specific uh, aspects of salvation, we see various theological words ending in shun, the first of which is condemnation. Back in Romans chapter 3, in verse 10 to 12, we read that there is no one righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. At the moment on Wednesdays, uh, with our 16 to 18-year-old guys group, 4Bs, we've been going through Romans this year, and these guys will be very familiar with the courtroom scene that Paul uses on a number of occasions as 
we go through Romans. And that's what we see again here. We are in the dock. We're in the courtroom and we're in the dock. And we're standing before God. And the verdict against us doesn't look particularly good. This is what we've seen with those verses that I've just read out. No one has done good. Not one of us. And in our reading in Romans 8, we recognise that we were once condemned. Guilty of all the wrong things that we have done. Separated from God. Awaiting his wrath and judgment. And we've seen that in our series so far, haven't we? That state that we were in, in our sin. So we're in the dock before God and we're found guilty. And that's where we were under God's law, in our sin, destined for death. But then along comes Jesus and he takes our place in the dock. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved for our guilty condition. He is condemned in our place. And as for us, well, in the first verse of our passage, have a look down if you've still got it open in front of you. In that first verse of our passage, we see that we are no longer found guilty. Have a look at it there in Romans 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this brings us on to our second shun word. We are no longer, uh, we are no longer condemned, we are no longer in condemnation, but instead we are justified. So justification is our second shun word. And again, uh, Paul is using legal language here. In Jesus taking our place in the dock, we are justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, right with God. This work of salvation in restoring our relationship with God uh, is seen back in Romans 5, where we read, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? We have been justified by Christ's blood. His death on the cross means, but is the means by which we can now be right with God. So how is it that we make this process from condemnation to justification? Well, back in our passage, we see in verse 2 that this process is possible because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life <clears throat> has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit has given us life through Jesus' work on the cross so that we are free from sin and death. So far, we've seen God's amazing work in salvation, in legal terms, once condemned, now justified. But there's one more aspect that we see here in Romans 8 in regards to our relationship with God being restored. And if we've seen the legal side of salvation, then this is the personal relational aspect. In verse 14 uh, to 16 of our passage, we read, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And here in these verses we see the third shun of our upward work of salvation. Adoption. We have some incredibly wonderful truths here. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that we are now, verse 14, children of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who has brought us about, uh, who's brought about our adoption to sonship. And you see that in verse 15. And it's by him that we are able to cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Do you see how personal that is? How intimate our relationship with God is through the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Remember where we came from, what we were. None of us did what was good. We all did evil. We stood rightly condemned before God, destined for death. But now, verse 16, we know in our hearts, because the Spirit is working in our spirit, that we are God's children. We've been adopted. And Jesus, speaking to his disciples just before his death, says in John 14 to 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in that chapter, Jesus is speaking of the work of the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us, and it's through the Holy Spirit that we no longer are condemned. We are no longer orphans, but are now children of God. Through this adoption, we no longer have a judge who rightly condemns us, but a father who greatly loves us. This is such a wonderful truth. And can you see that this is very much the work of salvation, and yet it goes so much deeper and further than simply saying we have been forgiven of our sins. So, this is God's work of salvation. We were condemned, but through Jesus' death on the cross, God has restored our relationship with him by the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who justifies us, and he brings us into his family as adopted children of God. That is the upward work of salvation, once condemned, but now justified and adopted. But it doesn't end there. We next see in Romans 8 the inward work of salvation. If you're a Christian here this evening, if you're a believer, then you have, in the words of Jesus in John 3, been born again. You have been born of the Spirit. You have new life in the Holy Spirit. And this means that as believers, saved by the cross of Christ, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with God. And again, in John's Gospel, and in chapter 14, we read that the Holy Spirit is in us. He is transforming who we are. And this is our next shun word. It's transformation. The transformation of the Spirit-filled Christian. And we see this in the work of... uh, So we see this in the life of Peter. 
who time and time again, as one of the disciples of Jesus, heard Jesus' teaching on humility, to be like little children. And yet even though he walked with the Saviour, Simon Peter remained proud and overly self-confident. But if you were to read Peter's first letter, that epistle towards the end of your Bibles, you would see a letter full of humility, with reference after reference of what it means to be humble. And more generally, in the life of Peter, we see someone who went from being a fisherman who was rash, act first and think later, who was proud, who was sometimes even violent. Peter went from being that to the man who would play a key role in establishing Jesus' church and who would lead thousands to repentance from his sermon that he gave on the day of Pentecost. How could such a change take place? What made the difference in Peter? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. In the life of Peter, we clearly see the work of God in salvation, in completely transforming this man. But you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good for Peter. He was one of Jesus' disciples after all. But how about me? Well, remember, it wasn't until Jesus had ascended back to his Father in heaven that we then see the change beginning in Peter. Jesus taught Peter and his disciples many things, but it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came upon them, entered their lives, and started to change them from inside that they then began to obey and live in light of all that Jesus had taught them. It was by the Spirit that the disciples were transformed and were able to do great things beyond anything that anyone imagined them capable of. And it's in the same Holy Spirit who lives in us, if we are Christians, that we can also do incredible things. In John 14, verse 16 to 17, we read Jesus saying these words, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. It is the Spirit who helps and leads us, who transforms us from our old selves into the likeness of Christ. Does this mean then that when we become Christians, we are no longer able to sin? Does it mean that when the Holy Spirit is working in us, we will be perfect, sinless and spotless? No, absolutely not. As John Stott says in his chapter on the subject, no, not a bit of it. In some ways, the battle with sin intensifies as we become increasingly aware of it in our lives. Back when I was at uni in my second and third year, I was living in a student house. And whilst it was quite a new house, it wasn't built to the highest of standards. And so Inevitably, I had some mould issues in my room. Nothing particularly special there. But the problem was, I wasn't actually aware of it. In the corner of my room was the wardrobe, and it was behind the wardrobe that the mould began to grow 
and spread. And it wasn't until one day where I noticed on the sleeve of one of my hoodies this strange green substance that I realized I had a problem going on. And I had to pull out the wardrobe from the corner of the room and let the light come in to see just how bad the situation was. And it was pretty bad. (laughs) And in the same way, the Spirit makes us aware of our sin. When we're filled with the Spirit, it's as if the wardrobe is moved away and the light comes into our lives. As we're filled with the Spirit, we're made aware of our sin. And he enables us to begin cleaning it out and to begin that battle. But it really is a battle. And we clearly see this in Romans 8 and verse 5 to 9, where Paul shows us a sharp contrast between those who are living according to the flesh, according to sinful desires, and those who are living according to the spirit. Well, those living according to the flesh, in verse 5, have minds set on what the flesh desires, on sin, which, verse 6, leads to death. And those, verse 7, under these sinful desires are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law, nor are they able to do so. And verse 8, they cannot please God. And in contrast to those uh, who are living according, in contrast to those who are living according to the flesh, we see those who are living according to the Spirit. And in verse 5, we, say that we see they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, which, verse 6, leads to life and peace. And those who have the Spirit, in verse 9, we see, have God living in them. And that is how we are able to fight wrong actions, words, and thoughts. It's through the Spirit in us that we are able to battle with sin, And as Will said in a recent sermon, to struggle with sin rather than snuggle with it. This year marks the 400-year anniversary since William Shakespeare's death. I'm sure a lot of you will have seen various different documentaries, clips and uh, comedy sketches about the life and work of the great playwright. But if I was to say to you, it's now you who has to write the next play. If I was to give you Romeo and Juliet or Henry V and say to you, you now have to write a play just like it. There's no way that we could do it, is there? Shakespeare could do it, but I certainly couldn't, and I'm sure you couldn't either. And in the same way, you might be thinking, well, Jesus could live the perfect life. Jesus could battle with sin and wrong desires and win. But there's no way I can. But going back to that illustration, if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live inside of you, you would then be able to write in the incredible way that he did. And in the same way, if the spirit of Jesus could come and live inside of you, then you'd be able to live the life of Jesus. Live like his life. And this is exactly what has happened It's exactly what has happened. And I very much hope that you've been able to see and understand that Jesus saved us from our sins and not just their consequences. 
It is through his death on the cross that the penalty of our sins has been forgiven. And it is through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, making his home in us, that the power of sins may be overcome. This is really good news. This is life-changing news. But the good news is that the good news doesn't end there. It gets even better as we look again at our passage in verse 10 to 13. And here in these verses, we see the incredible and wonderful hope that Christians have. If you're feeling that battle with sin is too hard, too much of a struggle, an unwinnable fight, then look at these verses with me and be greatly encouraged. In Romans uh, 8 and 10 to 13, we see our penultimate, our second to last shun word. This is all about our resurrection with Christ. Here in these incredible verses, the Christian is promised life. Even though our mortal bodies will one day die, we can have life forever. Have a look at verse 11. Just as Jesus was raised to life again, resurrected by God, well, in the same way, uh, well, uh, sorry, in, well, in the same way now that we have God's Spirit living in us, we too will be raised from the dead. The resurrection that Christ experienced will be our experience because of the life-giving Spirit within us. When we lived according to the flesh and our sinful desires, we recognised, didn't we, that that led to death, eternal death and separation from God. But now in contrast to that, we have this offer of life. But how is it that this life is available to us? Well, it's through God in us that we have eternal life, through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's our union, our oneness with Christ that means we will one day know freedom from our struggle with sin. The battle that we will fight now, that perhaps you're fighting right now, on that day will be completely won. And in our resurrection, we will have life free from pain, suffering, heartache. And we'll be able to spend eternity with the one who has made all of this possible for us. That is the promise we have as Christians. That even though we go through life facing hardships and battling with sin, we can look forward to the day when we will share in Christ's resurrection and have life in perfection forever with him. This then is the inward work of salvation. And again, recognise just how deep and rich this truth is. Through the cross, our sins are forgiven. But following this, through God dwelling in us and the Holy Spirit, we are transformed more and more into Christ-likeness. And we are given this amazing promise of resurrection and eternal life. These are the wonderful promises that are ours as God's adopted children. And as God's children, we are heirs with Christ. Did you see that in the final verse of our passage in verse 17? We are those who will inherit God's kingdom. And throughout this passage, there's been a strong focus on we. The work of salvation doesn't focus on the individual, but on the whole 
group of God's people, the church. And this is the outward work of salvation in our lives. As we have oneness with Christ through the Holy Spirit, we also have oneness with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I have no doubt that we all know from personal experience how easily a community, whether at college or in the office or within a friendship group, how quickly uh, those places can become full of jealousy and disunity. But God's plan in salvation is to restore our relationships with one another as well as with himself, the outward as well as the upward. And he does this through our final shun word, unification. And one of the most striking pictures that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the unity of believers is the human body. The church, Paul says, is the body of Christ. And every Christian is a member or organ of that body, whilst Christ himself is the head. Not every organ will have the same function, not every part does the same thing. But each is necessary for the body to work and to be fully effective. In Ephesians 4.4, Paul writes that there is one body and one spirit. And it's through that one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the church is one. It is in his presence, and it is through his presence in us, that we are made one as his body. And as we are unbreakably united with God in the Holy Spirit, we are unbreakably united with each other as his body, his church. And this unity shows itself in genuine love. Now the the British person inside of you might push back against that, that hippie notion of loving each other. But before you dismiss it, recognize that this love is vital. Unity is the evidence by which we know that we have passed from death to life, that we do have the Spirit living in us. This love is not sentimental or even necessarily emotional. Its essence is self-sacrifice. This love reveals itself in the desire to serve one another at cost to ourselves. John Stott, again, writes of this kind of love, this unification between Christians, and it's great. This is what he says. It is by love that the divisive force of sin is neutralized. It's a good word. For love unites where sin divides and brings together where sin pulls apart. That is unification. And that is the outward work of salvation in the life of the Christian. So, we've seen God's upward, inward, and outward work of salvation, that we were once condemned, but now through the cross, by the Holy Spirit, we have been justified and adopted into God's family. As children of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, which will one day lead to our resurrection and eternal life. And until that time, we have unity within the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is God's work 
in salvation. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be seeing how we can, we can and should be responding to this amazing news. But you can start your response to this news right now. Jesus has paid the great price and brought us back to him. Have you accepted his incredible gift of salvation and all that that includes? And that's a big all. Have you been adopted into God's family? And if you have accepted this gift, this gift, have you recognised the great depths of what salvation means? As a Christian, you have been saved from your sins, but the truths of God's work in salvation go so much deeper. Recognise them, know them, and thank God for them. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your work of salvation in us. We thank you that we can look at your word together and recognize where we once were, condemned, lost, and destined for death. But thank you so much, God, that we can now look at your word and recognize through Christ, through your spirit, where we are. We are saved. Help us to understand just how deep and how rich this truth is for us. Help us not to go away this evening uh, seeing it as a, a, get a, a get out of jail free card that we have simply had our sins forgiven but help us to recognise the wonderful truths of what salvation means for us and help us to be responding to them in a way which glorifies you. In your name, Amen.